0: Hello, everyone. This is Artin Zahiri, host of the Meet the Entrepreneur podcast. In today's episode, we are speaking with David Henderson, the Chief Operating Officer and Marketing Director of MP Strategic Group, a geopolitical maritime consulting firm based out of California. We're very excited to get started. To start off the bat, um, how about just briefly tell us about yourself, where you grew up, why you decided to attend Cal State Maritime Academy, and basically what your your what your future goals were growing up and now?
1: Yeah, of course. So full name is David Henderson. I I was born at Stanford Hospital on the Peninsula here in the Bay Area. I I grew up in the East Bay most of my life. I've lived here since I was three, uh, specifically in Walnut Creeks uh, for about five years now. And uh, why I got interested in CSU Maritime Academy is uh, my uncle who lives over in Southampton in England. Uh, he's actually a cruise ship captain and um, he's been working on ships since he was 16 years old and he left school, which you could back then. Um, But He is kind of like a good motivation or at least someone to look up to career wise for that. And it was a a real interesting industry, but a real niche environment. And for example, like there's only six maritime academies in all of the U S and CSU maritime Academy in Vallejo is the only one on the West coast. And it just happened to be half an hour from my house, so I figured it would be a a good fit for me, Um, so originally I wanted to do maritime transportation, which is physically like working and driving on ships and tugboats and stuff like that, but um, they put me in the international business and logistics program, which is still like a a great marketable degree and whatnot, especially from like a real niche university, Um, but I've just always wanted to work out at sea and like you need specific licenses for that um so i i graduated with my bs last may so about 13 ish months ago and i was working um in hawaii as a shipping agent doing maritime logistics for a company out there and then i was planning to go to a trade school up in uh, seattle in the start of march uh, Mm -hmm. to go get my required licenses that are needed and I was on track and had my apprentice company lined up. But unfortunately the coronavirus hit and everything was shut down and is basically still shut down the whole country in a way. Yep. Um, so my, my, like, that's still an end goal of mine whenever the country opens up and whatnot. But um, how I started into the startup was um, one of our buddies, um, he kind of had this idea to be a, a maritime consulting group in a way um so this was about we we kind of had thoughts about it all throughout school and figured like it's a really niche environment in university um like and it's very marketable. it's not just your typical business administration degree from you know whatever university you come from like it's (laughs) you you have really specific coursework that you get literally only at maritime academies and it's while it's very like again niche like you can it's like really specific for maritime jobs and like port work and stuff like with that again since there's there's very little competition because not very many people have those courses so uh anyways fast forward to uh, a few months ago there's uh the six of us we're you know all good friends in college and then um in about maybe early april we kind of got together and said you know, hey, why don't we have a have a stab at this, and um, one of the guys, he's a real big techie guy, he came up with the whole website, and eventually we're now a um, an established LLC here in California, so I know that was a lot at once, but that's where we're at. Yeah,
0: right great, great, so who came up with the name, and what's the meaning behind MP Strategic Group? In uh,
1: and, and simple, it's more so like Maritime Policy Strategic Group, but we felt like that was kind of a little lengthy of a name, so we figured why not shorten it. Um, Our CEO and founder, Ryan Mack, um, we we all graduated together last year from Maritime Academy. About half of us are International Business and Logistics majors, and then the other half are uh, Global Studies and Maritime Affairs majors. So they're more focused on like policy and government work and uh, whatnot, which is obviously huge and crucial in geopolitics.
0: Um, mm-hmm. so that,
1: that's where the name of that came from.
0: Got it. And you guys are a team of six right now, right?
1: Yes, sir. That's correct.
0: And uh what's kind of everyone? What's your specialty, and what's like everyone's role in the thing?
1: So, mine specifically, I'm kind of the head of marketing and social media. So, I'm in charge of the company's LinkedIn. That's my main. Um, I would guess um, contribution to the company, but we're all kind of, I I say this in a funny way, in each other's hair, like we're all doing little bits of everything to try and help out. So like the global studies guys, they're the main writers and researchers. And so like we're on our website, we're trying to promote, um, we have these things called a DAB report, which is a diversified Affairs Briefing. Um, Just like a fancy name for a report. Uh, basically, we're researching pertinent topics in the maritime or geopolitical industries that are happening around the world, and we we have our first one released about two weeks ago, and we're working on our second one, which should be out within the next you know seven eight days or so. Um, those are available on our website. Um, but so I'm basically again I'm in charge of the LinkedIn and hopefully reaching out to potential business connections. You know even like yourself like that's why I wanted to get in touch because you seemed like you had a lot of really relevant and important connections, both on LinkedIn and in real life. And so that's why I wanted to, to reach out. And here we are.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. So let's take a little bit of a step back. How would you define the maritime industry or the maritime field? Um, and who are the, the prominent players in, in this field?
1: So there's, I guess there are different ways you can break it down. Like the maritime industry as a whole you can I guess you could say the main players would be the big shipping companies um, the the big ones are unfortunately not really American based just because of costs a lot of uh, foreign entities and companies are usually um, the bigger players so like CMA CGM they're based in Marseille France um, Matson is the biggest American one they're they're actually based in uh, Honolulu but they have a huge nice. office in oakland so they're huge on the west coast and um, in hawaii and in like the pacific islands and territories there um there's maersk which is a big european-based company out of sweden or no excuse me out of copenhagen um so uh there's a bunch of japanese ones like nyk k-line um mm. one which is an acronym for ocean network express um so those are the big shipping companies um so they're the ones that you know physically you see all the big container ships and whatnot and then you can get down into more like shoreside companies like the all the um oil and gas industry like chevron shell bp they're of course obviously shoreside based but they all have tankers oil like crude oil lng um, you know bringing in millions of gallons of crude or lng or whatever Product they have, whether it's coming from Alaska to you know the continental U.S. or around the world, since obviously there's oil fields all around the world, both on land and in sea. Mm-hmm. And then you could also argue that there's um, part of the maritime industry is strictly based on land. So like what I worked with um, when I was in Hawaii, I worked for an agency company called Inchcape Shipping. Um, basically they're one of the biggest agency companies around the world so for shipping companies what they do to minimize costs is that they don't have a prospective representative in every single port around the um, around the world since that would just be way too expensive with overhead costs for having an office in literally every city that their ships would call in so they they hire these third parties third party agency companies which are basically the Representatives for the for the ships when they come in port in, into their respective port. So we handle all the logistics and customs paperwork and whatnot for these ships when they come into port. So that's a a huge part of the industry as well. And it's not even just deep sea stuff, you know. Which fun facts like ninety uh, percent of all goods around the world are are moved on a ship so everything right. you see coming from china and, and you know the far east is all imported um via ship um but a lot of that maybe not so much in the bay area but um in like the mississippi river valley system there is is a huge uh tugboat and barge industry cuz you can take um a product from new orleans and you can take it all the way through st louis and minneapolis just on a river which mm-hmm. is Mind blowing to some people, but I mean it really does exist. So, there's, cool. I, I just say it's a niche industry because a not very many people know about it. Like even though it's it's out there and doing everything, and basically everything you're wearing and probably ninety percent of what's in your room and in your house came on a ship. Um, so it's it's really mind blowing, like how big the maritime industry is, but how little people know or recognize a lot about it.
0: Absolutely. And your on that note, the report you guys put out the first one, which was centered around kind of covid nineteen best practices for the maritime mm-hmm. industry, it was particularly important because, as you mentioned, so much of what we of what we purchase, consume, and use is transported through ships so these uh these operations are extremely important to us because if there's covid nineteen outbreaks on the ships and those shut down that we won't be able to get our goods. Um, as we know, a lot of our stuff is imported from overseas. So, have, what's the landscape been like with with the whole global pandemic? How have the have you seen any outbreaks on these ships, or have they been taking the right the right steps as you guys laid out? And are are, are they pretty much uh, are they pretty much okay and everything's still going as it was?
1: Uh, well, I can answer it in, in two parts. So, quick answer is yes and yes. So, for example, the the cruise ship industry that was kind of the the first main player for covid in the maritime industry because like a few months ago um i believe it was like the grand princess off of japan like you you saw these isolated outbreaks on these ships which is almost like uh if you've ever been on a, a cruise or a cruise ship in general it's almost like a, a petri dish of bacteria just yeah. all these people and some of these ships can have four or five thousand people on them you know they're a a small city in a way which is i mean it's a unfortunately it's a a prime breeding ground for bacteria and viruses with all these people in an enclosed environments so that that's where the first big hit or mm-hmm. first big reconnaissance started to come for the maritime industry like, i know we're both bay area based like there was a huge um uproar about six seven weeks ago when that um, princess cruise ship um, was trying to fix, it was literally circling off of San Francisco for three weeks because there is a couple hundred people infected on board, but there is nowhere for the ship to go to berth. And so it took um, government and private authorities probably a month to figure out where the ship was going to go. Um, and eventually they found a spot at the port of Oakland where it's been, you know, laid up since then. But for the cruise industry going on, Many companies have canceled cruise bookings through the end of 2020, which is you know a, a huge amount of profit and revenue, especially around the, the holiday season which I mean thousands if not tens of thousands of workers are obviously going to be out of work until then even the the people who are still on board those ships they can't leave because there's quarantine restrictions in their respective countries um, granted some of those have been restricted in the last few weeks, but for a good two month period, like nobody was getting off of any ship worldwide. um in, in certain ports and countries, those are starting to be restricted slowly. Um, but in terms of, I'd say, like container shipping and deep sea shipping, um, there hasn't been too much of a regu- um, a slowdown per se. I would say that it's more of a slowdown in actual cargo um, <coughs> volume and container volume. True. Just because, for example, China was, at least the Wuhan province, which was pretty industrial, there was, I mean, it was literally on lockdown for two and a half months. And so all these, you know, factories and whatnot that are based in China, they were shut down for a good two months, if not more. So all of those goods that that company and um, factories would be producing weren't being shipped. And that, it's almost like a trickle-down effect. Like you um you might have a factory produce a couple container like couple goods that would go in containers each week but if you have that for a whole country like that could be thousands of containers on a ship and again that's a trickle down effect like the shipping company gets less taxes and fees from that there's less goods overall for the consumer in america and wherever else the the ship is going and then that like supply and demand the you know the supply goes down because there's less factories producing these goods and then the prices go sky high like um, masks and hand sanitizers have been in sky high demand since you know February and granted like China is slowly starting to open up its factories again so I'd say it hasn't impacted the way in terms of like infections like I'm sure there's been isolated cases of some infections and those people and crew would have to be quarantined but mm-hmm. it's more of an impact on the actual volume of container goods more than um, the ships being affected because a lot of these ships are what's called liner routes which means that they're on a specific schedule for specific ports um like when i was in hawaii um ocean network express was our big customer that we were partnered with and so they had ships come into honolulu every Thursday at 5 a.m. That was literally always their schedule. And it would be on a triangle route between Honolulu, Pusan, uh, South Korea, and Yokohama, Japan. And those were literally the only three ports those ships would go. So a lot, of, especially nowadays, like those, those ships and those routes are still active and still mostly on time. But It's just the container volume and the amount of containers or goods on the ship is decreased overall.
0: Got it. Thank you for that answer. That was yep. very detailed and very, very good. You covered everything.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so let's, let's take us, let's, let's go back to when you were at CSU Mary time. Just some kind of fun questions here. I saw that you played, uh, you played soccer while you were there. Did you play soccer in high school too or no? Uh,
1: yes and no. So it's kind of an interesting story. Like I, I started playing soccer when I was three. Like I, I played at the, the local um, club team, Mustang Soccer, in mm-hmm. my, my whole life. Um, I didn't play at high school. We we both went to Monta Vista of course. Like I I know I was a I graduated um a year before you, but um I, I just played club through all of high school. Um I okay. didn't play um at like the actual high school team, but I was able to play at my university and we were a um a D two program but which was it was super awesome. It was just really hard competitive wise because um we were the only team that didn't get scholarship money. So We'd be going up against teams that were similar size in terms of like school population, but their like recruiting budget would be two or three hundred thousand dollars a year, which was literally like our whole athletic budget. And it's like, I mean, it's, um, it's like a, a high school baseball team going up against the Yankees like every other Saturday. Like it's just that level of play. Like I mean, it's just you know they're just better in everything. So. That was hard, but it was definitely a great experience and fun to travel on road trips and yeah. obviously play something that I love.
0: Were you recruited or did you join the team as, like, a walk on? Uh, no, it wasn't really,
1: like um, – I wasn't really recruited, per se. Like, I didn't have to do, like, National Signing Day or whatever it's called. But um, I was in contact with the coach before um, I attended uh, mm-hmm. just to kind of get a lay of the program and, like, what was his training and what – um like what was his goals and like what were they trying to produce as a program so I wasn't exactly recruited per se like like they didn't have scholarships and whatnot but I I definitely like I was in contact with the coach so anybody could join the team but we did have um like tryouts and whatnot while we were there
0: got it got it and um did you play all four years or how long did you play on the team?
1: Uh so yeah, I play all four years. I um I started about <coughs> by forty, fifty percent of the game's freshman year 'cause the the starter who was a senior, he had um some concussion issues and then I started um uh sophomore junior and senior.
0: Cool. Did you get any injuries or you stayed uh, mostly unscathed?
1: Um I, I broke a couple of fingers but um I mean, which, I mean, is big as a bully, but, like, I, I had, like, really special gloves that um they're almost bulletproof. Like, they, the back ends of the gloves, they had, um like, Kevlar in them. So, wow. basically, it was to to help, like, if, you know, a ball was coming in, which these guys could kick really hard. Um, It was basically to – it was almost like a spine down, like, the ridge of the glove in the back of your hand. So, your fingers wouldn't bend past, like, a normal um, – oh like a normal bending point in a hand, which like as a kid might've happened a lot with just like little flimsy gloves, but those, those gloves helped a lot, but like occasionally I would get stepped on when, and whatnot, but I mean, all you just need to do is wrap it in tape or like a little splint and it would heal, heal in a few weeks. So thankfully nothing, you know, major you know, big, you know, ACLs or stuff like that, which is, I mean, I was obviously blessed with to have good health, but
0: you know. yeah. Yeah. And then also, while you were at CSU Maritime, you um, you worked with the Marines Programs Department, right?
1: The Marines program.
0: The, yeah, the Marine Programs Department and the Campus Boat Oh, House.
1: okay. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I th- I thought you meant like the Marine Corps, but um, no, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's what I was confused about. Um, so one of my jobs slash internships that I did over the summer, um, I believe it was the it was either summer of 2016 or 2017, but um, I our, our school has, a, they called it a boathouse. And so mm-hmm. uh, one of the, the big, so like, again, like it's such a niche university, like the Marine transportation majors and the engineers, um, who study that want to go to sea, they have to, they had um, like boat handling classes and machine shop and all these like super cool, but different classes. And so, especially the marine transportation majors they had to do like boat handling classes and whatnot so the the school at their boathouse like it's basically a tiny harbor they had a bunch of these different kinds of boats like we had like two fifty 50-foot tugboats um they had like monomoys, which were basically um older lifeboats um they had a couple of like small power boats and basically throughout the year these kids, like freshman through senior, have respective um, classes, and then um, during the summer they go out at sea, either at our university ship or out like in real world internship experience on a on an actual company ship. So um, during the summer, you know, all those kids are gone out at sea, so the um, it's like a perfect three four month gap for these um, boats and uh, equipment to be. Um, like fixed and repaired and do repairs and stuff. So I was kind of like a, a summer deckhand in a way. So I helped the permanent staff do repairs, take out the boats and stuff like that. Um, but I, I tie it in with the Marine programs department there, which is in charge of like the, the ballast water and Marine species and biology at the school. Mm. They constantly do, um, Like science experiments and stuff with the marine bio students and then just for general upkeep as well, since we get um, federal funding from MARAD, which is the basically literally the maritime administration part of the US government. Um, So they have to keep um, specific records and whatnot of the salinity and the balance water records of the ship and all these little records which are actually pretty important in the long run so mm-hmm. I hope um, um, even with just simple like salinity readings or like using a Secchi disc which allows you to see um, how clear the water is um, like how fast the currents were um, maybe fish populations near our harbor so oh stuff God. like that so it was definitely a hard working summer but it was really informative and I got to do um, a lot of different tasks which is Did you ever get
0: a did you ever get to operate any of the vessels or no?
1: Uh yeah. So the I mean it was mostly just like the little power boats that we got to take out every once in a while, which was obviously a lot of fun. Um like, you know, at at the end of the week on like a Friday afternoon, like my my boss said myself and my coworker, we could take out the boats for a spin. um, That's it. kinda like for a a car like you don't want it just sitting around for three months like you got to run it every once in a while through the battery it's like mm-hmm. the same thing at least for like these smaller boats so that was definitely um fun time
0: awesome all right so one more one more question about your personal experience and then i'll shift gears more towards uh the consulting group and what you guys are working on so right after right after you finished college you did um you did like a little eight-month stint uh, as a marine operations associate at Inchcape Shipping Services. They're uh-huh. a pretty big global shipping company. Um, you worked on their in their Honolulu port. How did you get in contact with them? Um, you know, they're they're a pretty large significant company. And how did you land that gig?
1: So they're um, they actually have a real big well, big isn't the right adjective. A real um, long-standing partnership with Cal Maritime. Like for the they have. Um, offices like all along the west coast and in honolulu so i leave like la long beach um, oakland for the bay area uh, portland seattle and vancouver canada um, they all have respective offices there and it was something like 10 11 years ago the west coast manager reached out to cma and they started taking um, summer interns in each of their offices so for about three four month period um, and so there would be, you know, 11, 12 cadets would get these internships every summer, which is a huge amount. And obviously it's a big investment for the company, but a lot of these kids would eventually um, start their careers for Inchcape once they actually graduated from Cal Maritime. So um, they, were, they were always active participants, like in our both our fall and um, winter career fairs. Um, so I, I was in contact with them, probably about four or five months before graduation. And um, Hon- this was the first time that like Honolulu was participating in I that, and like it was the first time they were taking on an intern um, just because like it's arguably their smallest office in the West Coast. Like they just don't have a lot of traffic um, as the West Coast, like in Oregon and California do. Um, So And no one had applied yet for the Honolulu office and I figured, you know, why the hell not, like I'll just, I'll go for it, like it would be a a great gig for experience and whatnot, which is, you know, always so crucial, especially at like an entry level career stage. Um, So I I basically, I had the job before I graduated, which is awesome because you can focus on your classes and your finals, which, you know, as you know, coming from Babson is also key. Yep. Um, and then one of my I was there for the summer through August but one of my uh, co-workers she actually um, was getting married and she moved back to um, state uh, continental U.S. to stay with her now husband um, so they had like a full-time slot available so I stayed on um, through the through the end of Christmas um, so that's how I um, got into that gig.
0: Very nice very nice and what kind of uh who are you mainly uh working with or uh who are you mainly engaging with while at the company
1: so i guess i, I mean while at the company my boss was the port manager so mm-hmm. he was literally in charge of um a lot of, I'll, I'll say it this way a lot of our work is based on communication so emails and phone calls and um it's not a very glorified industry and I, or a glorified job, and I say that because the maritime industry is obviously worldwide, and a lot of these companies and ships that we deal with are foreign. So they're foreign offices. You know, they could be in Athens or Tokyo or Singapore, which is of course around the world in differing time zones. And yeah. it's a huge, um, you know, it's a really thin margin in terms of profit for these shipping companies, but there's still millions of dollars on the line every single day. Like if a ship came into port a few hours late, like that could be thousands of dollars, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars of, or late fees and customs fees and whatnot. So it's actually kind of, kind of crazy, but we would have a schedule of a ship and we would know six months in advance what day and what time we would come in. Like, of course, you know, weather in, you know, uh, Labor strikes and whatnot would obviously affect that, um, you know, six months in advance. But so for to I guess to continue answering your question, we would deal with um, shipping owners, uh, actual captains on the ship. We would be in constant communication with them. Depending like what the schedule was for the ship, we would have to notify the the longshoremen who actually dealt with the cargo, um, customs and border protection, which obviously dealt with all the customs and paperwork. Um occasionally the US Coast Guard, um, since they would have to do inspections sometimes. Um, some of the, the, the maritime pilots, um, they would they were the ones who brought in all the ships. So it's definitely cool to be um you had to be in constant contact with everybody and make sure everybody knew what was going on and um which is definitely a, a tall task for sure, especially because um Especially, I mean, maybe this is just a Honolulu problem, but everybody kind of knows everybody. Um, and thankfully, my boss had been there. He was, you know, a local born and bred in Honolulu. And he had been in that company for, I think, 16, 17 years. So he literally knew everybody and every phone call and everybody's phone number and who to contact. So that was definitely a helpful resource. But a lot of it is like snap decisions and, you know, on the on the time judgment calls, which... Can yeah. have like a lot of um a lot of power and sway behind it which is pretty daunting as a task like first job out of college but yeah. de- definitely a good experience for sure
0: absolutely thanks thank you for sharing your experiences that was really interesting of
1: course
0: uh, so let's let's now uh, change course let's talk about let's talk again about uh, mp strategic group
2: mm-hmm. i
0: looked through the first report you guys uh, laid out i thought it was interesting you just want to um for our audience briefly? Uh, just give a teaser of what the report is about and who's the intended target audience for that report.
1: Yeah, so I, the first part of your question, uh, we wanted to obviously COVID-19 has been impacting you know the world and everybody in, in some way, shape or form. So our, our first report, we wanted to do how it's impacting uh, the maritime industry as a whole with um like literally the crews on board, like the cargo volume, which I detailed earlier um and we we wanted to do more in depth research and how like the industry was impacted like not just right now but in the future, so one of our writers, robert sanchez who's um He's actually planning to go to the Monterey Institute and study like anti proliferation and terrorism. So he's a you know a real up and coming you know writer in terms of that sense. Um, and in part of our report, he actually covered uh, hospital ships and hospital ships are like the countries around the world that have hospital ships. And mm-hmm. one of the really interesting things he found out is that um, these hospital ships their ma- their main purpose was to help treat, like, wartime casualties, like in, um, like, obviously, matters of war, invasion, and, you know, big trauma injuries, um, and even, like, humanitarian um, disasters, like a tornado or a hurricane, Um, like in, I believe, like, the USNS Mercy was used in Puerto Rico in 2017 when they had Hurricane Maria, which obviously devastated the island, Um, but, when it comes to infectious diseases, which obviously COVID-19 is, um, these ships are almost a breeding ground in fumigation for these diseases because they have these huge trauma entry rooms, like almost all of these hospital ships were built the same, like these huge trauma entry rooms where everybody is treated like they're they're sectioned off like with drapes so it's like an individual room per se and like mm-hmm. they have like operating rooms and stuff like that and in, in like intense surgeries but um a lot of the times it's open ventilation or like ventilation that goes from um, room to room and as a, a respiratory disease like COVID-19 that would all you need is one infected patient or nurse or crew member And the whole ship could potentially be infected, which obviously defeats the whole purpose of a hospital ship. And so he detailed really well in the report, like how this isn't, might not be the greatest idea to store patients who are infected or potentially infected, not just with COVID 19, but all like respiratory infections and whatnot. Um, And one of the interesting things he found out is that um, China's building a new. Uh, respiratory, like specifically a respiratory disease ship, which would like help um, treat respiratory disease in COVID 19 patients while not jeopardizing the rest of the crew and patients. And funny enough, it's being uh, designed in Wuhan province of all places. But um, that was just like a, a quick snapshot of the first mm-hmm. report. And then um, I guess detailing our second report, which is going to come out in the next week or so, hopefully. Um, we're actually focusing on this huge initiative um, in Eastern Europe called the Three Seas Initiative, excuse me, which is, um, if you're, if yourself and viewers have heard of the One Belt, One Road and that China um, first introduced in early 2013, it's kind of like a, a transportation and infrastructure project by a lot of, I believe it's 12 Eastern European countries. Like a lot of these were former um, Soviet bloc nations that unfortunately, have been underdeveloped the last two or three decades. Um, and so they've gotten a lot of outside investment and commitment. Like the U.S. has already committed $1 billion to the initiative, which is is huge in a couple aspects because, A, like these countries are underdeveloped and it'll help, you know, their struggling economies and their GDP. And like a, another big thing is that a lot of these companies or excuse me, countries are, um, they're hugely influenced by Russia in the region like both because it's kind of like the big bad bully in the East but Russia has literally the control of all the natural gas and oil in the region yes. um, and they're obviously a huge military strength so these these countries are trying to wean off of Russia's influence in a way and open up to more Western nations and Western economies and Western trade which is um, a lot more profitable hopefully for these uh, countries so they're working together to try and invest in infrastructure projects like canal digging, um, major highways expansion, um, port re- like rebuilding or building of ports. Um, so that's what we're covering in our second report upcoming.
0: Got it. Thank you for the hi- thank you for the highlight there. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked you last time we spoke briefly, you also mentioned the Belt and Road initiative that China's uh, spearheading. Mm-hmm. How uh You know, I've I've seen there have been some uh, some pundits that have been critical of the strategy. How do you see it playing out? And um, what's 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 your take on it? Do you think it's going to be good for for trade and for the region or what's your take on that?
1: Well, I mean, it's going to be I mean, it's like a 40 year initiative. Like it's not going to be something that happens in one one or two years. Um, Like this was first introduced by Xi Jinping, the president of China, back in. 2013 2014 roughly so and their their end goal is i believe like 2059 for everything that they have respect 2049 okay yeah sorry my i was i got one digit, one digit off but um <laughs> so ba- basically it's I, I see it as a, i mean there's a couple of different ways you can view it as but it's in a way china flexing their huge trading muscle and trying to be you know the world player like you could argue the U.S. has been the predominant um, economic power the last 30, 40 years or so, um, and then you know China is obviously a huge trading partner, not just for the U.S. but for the world. And uh, like a lot of their, the whole um, design of the project was to be built off of the old Silk Road that was yes. made famous by uh, Genghis Khan, you know, a couple hundred years ago. So the they've China, the Chinese government has been planning and is funding. Um, like massive billion dollar infrastructure projects with ports and highways all throughout Southeast Asia and the Middle East, and even in some parts of Eastern Africa. Um, Like there's, there's huge amounts of money every day being invested in these countries and projects. Um, And I mean, environmental concerns are off the charts in respective countries that um, I mean, which I mean, to be fair is in most major Um, construction of, you know, big projects, there's always going to be environmental concerns, but especially with China, which is the world's largest polluter, this might just exasperate the the global pollution and um, global warming problem, which is obviously a a key issue for now and for the future. Absolutely. Um, But if, I mean, it's a huge economic and military strength player in a way because China is making friendly relations and huge amounts of investments and in obviously their own country, but these neighboring countries and even countries in Eastern Africa and in certain parts of the Middle East, where, um, they might be, they might have been Western allied or friends with the U.S., but now that China's investing and pumping in billions to their economies and to their projects, like they might be leaning more towards um, Chinese influence rather than american western influence which is obviously huge economically and militarily so there's definitely huge ramifications for um not just the u.s but all western nations and everybody involved it's it's like again it's something that's going to be 30 years in the works but definitely something to be aware of
0: yeah. Yeah, I did a little bit of research on it, and I'm seeing that China's invested literally trillions of dollars um, in infrastructure, transport and energy across different countries in the Middle East, like building gas pipelines in Pakistan, ports in Kazakhstan. And they, they're you know, getting, getting. I think, over 100 countries are on board with the initiative. Is this something that you think... Um, could be potentially viewed as a threat to the United States in the long term as China gets more influence in these regions?
1: Oh, 100%. Like, and it's it's not just mil- militarily, but I mean, you could go into that. Like, there there's even the last 10 years, there's been maritime disputes in the South China Sea with the, like the Spratly Islands, which, I mean, are just these random uninhabited groups of islands, which are... Uh, are claimed by seven or eight countries in the regions but they don't have the military power like China does and China claims them and has been building artificial islands for the last few years and putting gun installations and troops on those islands and it's mm-hmm. it's almost like um I don't say I don't mean this in a derogatory way but you know do you see Brunei or Malaysia militarily challenging China for these islands like no I like, no. China would beat them in a heartbeat and it would I mean, you could go to the International Court of Justice and whatnot and say, like, hey, China's doing this, and they might issue, you know, warnings or sanctions or whatnot, but China's not going to care. Like, they have so much power militarily and economically, like, they're going to do it regardless, and that's why you see these freedom of navigation um, that U.S. warships do, and militarily, like, around the world, like you said, there's over hundreds of countries that are involved in one way, shape, or form like those countries are going to become most likely more friendly with China. Like there might be Chinese troops or at least a lot of Chinese officials or government workers situated at these sites. Like it's most likely going to be Chinese workers as well as local workers, depending on the the nation and whatnot that it's working in. Um, but I mean, you look at, um, for example, like in, in Europe, how um, the U.S. has thousands of troops in in Poland and other Eastern European states, I mean, they're they're literally just a deterrent for Russia in a way, like, yeah, they do training and whatnot with the local military forces there, but Russia knows that if they invade Poland or other Estonia or other Eastern European nations, you know, the U.S. has resources there and that Russia obviously doesn't wanna to go to the war with the U.S., so in a way it's similar to China. Like, even if they just build a pipeline through Pakistan or Angola or Madagascar or these other interested and involved countries, they know if America or other Western nations have some sort of economic or military conflict, that there's going to be this Chinese pipeline that, you know, if it got bombed or turned off, or if there's a port that got shut down, which was obviously Chinese built and Chinese funded, like that's going to piss off a lot of people in the Chinese government, which So Mm is isn't exactly the best thing to do in in a lot of circumstances, um, regardless of what position or political spectrum you lie on. Um, So definitely like even now China is a huge global power. Like there's no way to deny that. But um, I mean, it's definitely an evolving process, not just year by year, but day by day, because these new projects and initiatives are spawning almost like every other month. then, you know, minds are going to be changed, and money is a huge influencer. Unfortunately, like um, yes. whether it's corruption-based or not, which is obviously going to be a huge player. Which going back to the three C's initiative is why the U that the U.S. has already invested at least one billion dollars, because again, like money talks, and these countries are going to invest tons of money in their own countries and in hopes of becoming more western allied and american allied in terms of weaning off of russia so i know that was a lengthy answer but i i hope i helped
0: yes very important that was very important for you to to lay out there Mm -hmm. and you you mentioned russia and i saw um, in an article it was posted in forbes last summer i think Mm -hmm. it said uh, there was a silk silk road breakthrough and russia is beginning construction on the china western europe transport corridor what's russia's uh, what's Russia's role in this like One Belt One Road initiative from China? Are they are they a part of it? Are they helping China with it, or are they feeling threatened as well?
1: Uh, I mean, it's a little bit of both. Like I think Ru- like Russia is a, a big trading partner and a big ally in a way militarily um, with China. Like I know they have obviously different government structures and um, different <laughs> societies of and cultures, of course, but I think just in terms of North Korea, like they're allied in terms of that. Like they, you know, Russia's been propping up Bashar Assad in Syria the past six, seven years. So um, which China has been supporting in some way, shapes and forms as well. So uh, Russia isn't doing too well right now economically, mainly because yes. um, oil prices have been so low and Russia's like part of OPEC, um, the big petroleum exporting countries and that's one of the main exports if not the main export for russia and so they're not doing great economically so i think that's one of the big things why russia is willing to work with china if not have these chinese funded because china has a lot of that economic powerhouse that russia may be lacking currently right now and so i'm sure putin and other government leaders and whatnot could see this as a beneficiary and be mutually you know, symbiotic for both countries in the long run that, you know, I don't, I don't think China's going to push over Russia anytime soon. Like, I think they're smart enough to realize that. But Mm -hmm. I also think they're smart enough to realize that Russia could be a a big trading partner if they're allied both with trading um, assets and infrastructure as well as, you know, militarily. Um, So that's, that's like my opinion and point on that.
0: Yeah, and I do know that China is Russia's largest trading partner mm-hmm. and also Russia is China's largest oil supplier. Um I'm, I mean from my from my perspective, let me know if you disagree, but it seems like the the relationships are just warming up and we can see an alliance the alliance between the two countries just kind of further grow at this point.
1: Oh yeah, like 100% and like of course like you could argue they would fund potentially terrorist organizations or proxy wars like that could be your own. I mean, that's a whole geopolitical argument that could Mm. last for hours, if not, you know, days. But I mean, I think both countries and their respective leaders are smart enough to realize their own respective strengths and maybe not realize the U S as a direct enemy as maybe it was in the cold war or whatnot, but definitely as a, as a threat, um, not just democratically versus communism or authoritarianism, but just economically, because as, um, as I'm sure you've seen over the last few months, like, of course, China has been a huge producer of goods for decades now. And just for like the, the American and Western nation supply chain is hugely reliant on China and Chinese goods and yeah. Chinese manpower and labor. And if China was to, I mean, they can't just turn that off of course on a push of a button but if they wanted to you know they could say no or uh, wean trading relations with america and other western nations which would hugely put a strain on um u.s supply chain regardless if it's food or you know containerized goods or whatnot um which is huge like of course there's a whole made in america argument and that you know american goods have better quality whether it's steel or you know corn or whatever but that's also exponentially more expensive like that's why so many companies have their factories in Bangladesh and Vietnam and China just because it's so much cheaper with land power uh, with manpower excuse me in labor yes you know if you know Russia and China like they I feel like they can see like again a symbiotic relationship not just with trading with each other but potentially working with these other nations and if they have these nations almost under the under their control in a way, like I guess similar to um, of course the Soviet union broke up in 1991, but there's still many Soviet former Soviet States like Kazakhstan and Belarus that are so intertwined with Russia and Russian society and culture that it's almost like they're still part of Russia, even though they're their independent country. And I'm not saying that like, Every, you know, the hundred countries that China is going to be working with is going to be turned into a part of China, you know, now, but they're sure. definitely going to be favorable to China and Chinese money and Chinese investment yes. rather than American or Western investment, which is obviously key, not just for American government policy, but uh, for the private sector investment as well
0: absolutely yeah and are you aware of uh, the, the, the role that the arctic plays and what they call the polar silk road do you have any insight you can provide on that
1: i'm not sure 100 percent about the the polar silk road but i know the the polar region and the arctic has been up for debate for years territorially because um well i mean a environmentally it's obviously a hugely contested region um mm-hmm. and you know Global warming has been a huge impact the last four years, regardless if you agree with it or not. But um, anyways, going down to like political might, like there's a lot of um, untapped like oil and natural gas reserves in the Arctic, um, which would obviously mainly come from drilling down into the seabed. But that's billions, if not trillions of dollars worth of you know black gold literally just sitting under there. And so that's why, like over the past you know two decades or so, there's been these um increased investments by Russia and other nations in the Arctic because I mean, other than you could argue polar bears and ice, there's not really a lot there, even though it's a huge environmental concern, and so there's a there's a huge um I know Russia tried it a while ago, but there's a huge debate of the Northwest Passage, which was basically a shipping route above Canada like through the um, through the ice pack there which um, didn't end up well like the the ice there's just too much ice and too long of a distance but it's more so a, a debate over what country has access to what lands which again is another huge geopolitical dispute that still hasn't fully been decided yet but a lot of these nations they look towards the Arctic because so much money is in black gold and natural gas and oil that, um, you know, billions, if not trillions of dollars is most likely situated under the seabed. Um, so in terms of like a a silk road, I wouldn't say that as much in the Arctic, but definitely more, I would be, I wouldn't be shocked if there's more, at least exploration, um, of the sea ice in the Arctic, if not full drilling scale operations.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and personally, I'm quite concerned about the environmental ramifications of that um, when that does happen. Uh, definitely raises some red flags.
1: Oh, yeah. And like, regardless of what part of the political spectrum you're on, like it's global warming should be and is an issue. Um, yes. You know, and it's, you know, drilling, you know, you could argue that, um you know, drilling for natural gas and oil is harmful, which in certain aspects it is. Um, you know, whether it's from the carbon footprint or the physical drilling into the seabed with the marine life, and like the Deepwater Horizon incidents with BP a few years ago in the in the Gulf of Mexico, um, which obviously was no pun intended a, a black mark for um, their company and for the environment. Um, but it, I mean, it's a it's a shame because a lot of these countries like not so much in the US because um the environment and environmental groups have so much more sway than say in Russia or China where a lot of these authoritarian governments they might not care or even turn a blind eye to environmental groups or concerns, which unfortunately they're the big powers in the region, which is, you know, again leading back to my previous comments and our conversation is a huge concern. Um, Like, A, they could, you know, establish, you know, drilling rigs or oil exploration platforms there. But what's to say they don't put a military installation in the Arctic as well? And Mm -hmm. that's going to be a a natural deterrent as well, other than the (coughs) extremely cold weather and polar bears. So, again, something to keep an eye on as well.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for that. That was very important. That was a great explanation of what's going on there. Mm -hmm. Um, changing the topic a bit in the report i saw you guys talk about iot iot and 5g and SQL. i know you're not the tech guy on the team Mm -hmm. but what role do these technologies and just technology in general play in the maritime field
1: so in um from the yeah i'm not the greatest techie guy in the world but in terms of 5g like that's been a revolution the past year or so both being around the world and Um, a a huge amount of the data analytics that comes from the maritime industry is simple itself it's data related and all internet based so all these ships and companies they they track data and data mining um, and look for ways to always improve performance because a lot of times these companies and ships they're they're running like really low margins like a lot like a lot of these times these ships have to be 80 or 85 percent full just to make a profit um from operating expenses like from fuel and paying their crew and whatnot so it's a, a really tight industry so these companies both domestic and abroad they're always trying to find ways to be better and to cost cut and to to save money wherever they can while you know having everything being safe and well trained which is you know a fine line depending on what country you're from and loose regulations which is again a, a different topic in its own but um, integrating all these new softwares in 5g it would, it'll obviously take a while but if the maritime industry is up to date which a lot of times it's more personnel based the maritime is obviously a huge um, kind of old time tradition. And a lot of times it's pretty resistant to change, like not just with technology, but um, just with people and the workforce, like it's heavily unionized, whether you like unions or not, that's just how it's always been. Um, And especially technology-based, a lot of these groups and companies might be resistant to change if, you know, a lot of the times it's, if it ain't broke, don't fix it kind of a mindset. Uh, Yeah. And I mean, there's always security and hacking concerns that comes with any technology. Um, but with 5G, like it'll just be a better everything that, you know, kind of like the the new iPhone that comes out, it seems like every year, kind of, you know, better better memory, better software, better battery, like kind of a little bit better of everything. And I feel like that that would be the impact of 5G. And if that becomes pretty widespread globally, that could only help benefit the maritime industry worldwide um, and not just in specific ports.
0: Right. And I see, I can mean, I think the the application of IoT is pretty obvious in the shipping industry for sure. Um, You know, the way it can just enable like real-time tracking and communicate between the devices. So it can kind of keep tracks of all the goods being shipped. Do you know how how much IoT technology? To, I know 5G is still new and is is not mainstream yet. Uh-huh. But do you know to which extent IoT technology has been adapted by the shipping industry?
1: So I would I would say it has in an extent. Uh, the shipping company, like the big, um, well, well, not I guess worldwide, but global shipping companies. So the big container companies, like I was saying, they they run really low margins. So even one container If you have a 40 foot container, which is the standard size, if that's all filled with, or filled, excuse me, filled English, um, filled with, you know, frozen shrimp, that could be $2 million just in that container. Um, Mm. And it's, that's like every single container is monitored and they know exactly just with the entry of a barcode, they know exactly where it is and what port around the world. And, you know, the IoT just helps these companies treat you know, keep track of containers and um, trying to figure out cargo flow and cargo stowing and planning. And yes, which is kind of tied into effect with the coronavirus, since while these ships, yes, are still running, but the cargo cargo volume is a lot lower than expected. So a lot of these ships, um, so like depending on what company you go to, some of them are are laid up, which just means like they're are anchored off of some port somewhere and they're not running because there might be some containers that need to be shipped but there's not enough to where they would be making a profit or they would just be running huge deficits so there's like no point running the ships at that at that point so there's definitely some IOT um, again I'm not a big techie guy so I'm not sure the specific softwares that individual companies use and whatnot but it, it's definitely around in some way shape or form for sure
0: yeah yeah, absolutely. And you touched on this a bit in your last answer um, about how cybersecurity has always been a focus. Um, do you want to talk about the threats of maritime hacks and what different uh, different companies are trying to cur- curtail those attacks?
1: Oh yeah, and I, I mean it's. I mean, anytime you use some type of technology, regardless of how small or big the scale is, like there's always a security threat of hackers or stealing data or whatnot, but. Like with the the maritime industry, like just um, for example, like it's obviously a huge amount of profit and goods that are traded every day. And um, just like for, I guess, a personal example, um, when I, like I would have to board ships at my old job at the Inchcape for agency, and we would deal with the paperwork and whatnot with the captains, but sometimes the captains would request like certain documents or software um, that they couldn't, like, download on their ship's computers, like, just because, like, they weren't, you know, like, the best tip-top computers or whatnot, um, so we would have to bring, like, software or whatnot for them to download, like, we couldn't bring outside USBs on board in case they were hacked, or we were, you know, malicious people trying to hack the company or whatnot, or even if it we didn't know, and it was um, malicious to the computer, so, like, just just stuff like that you know it all it takes is one bad apple or one you know one hack and a company's not just like their the data of their seafarers but a company's personal information could be hacked like there's sensitive trading documents and agreements that are um, available not widely available of course but are stored online for these companies and Especially if it's government contracts or other things, there's a lot of you know sensitive, highly classified information, which is, I mean, regardless of what industry you're in is a is a huge concern and worry, not just for the maritime industry, but as a whole.
0: Absolutely, yeah, thank you. Mm-hmm. And as as I look forward or as we look forward to the, the maritime industry in the future, I think two very big trends that have kind of disrupted or at least impacted every single industry have been the digital transformation or the digital revolution, which we talked about with IOT and 5G. And then obviously the most uh, recent one is COVID-19. I think without a doubt that's either disrupted or at least impacted every industry in some way.
2: Mm-hmm. So with
0: those, with those two big, uh, with those two big things really just coming at all these industries, how do you think the maritime industry is going to have to change in the future or what do you think will change? Well, it's,
1: it's hard to judge right now, because I think we're all still in the depths of coronavirus. Like, of course, there's not a vaccine yet, which seems like right now might be the only deterrent. Um, But unfortunately, like I I mentioned before, like the, the maritime industry is kind of not exactly receptive to change. And, for example, like the, when I had to deal with all the customs paperwork, that's all still, you know, physical paperwork, like, none of that is really done online and which I mean, could help make it more secure, like less human error. Yeah. Um, and I guess environmentally friendly. you know, saving trees and ink and whatnot. Um, but un- unfortunately, at least probably for the next year to 18 months or at least that minimum to when a vaccine is created and widely available, I don't think there's going to be much change both with 5g in the maritime industry and other technology in general for, throughout maritime because companies aren't going to have the capital to invest in these new projects and there a lot of these companies are really focusing on surviving right now and it's like mm-hmm. you might, I mean just from a simple business standpoint like you're not going to invest to, million dollars in a new technology upgrade which would undoubtedly help your company but these companies are just trying to stay afloat like pun intended yeah um and it's like they they can't afford a, a huge investment right now even though undoubtedly it would be beneficial so i mean i doubt it would be it would probably be at least another another year or so before we see hopefully huge um mm-hmm. computerized and internet changes for these shipping companies and whatnot um I mean like uh, so so much of it already is done on computers like all the all the stowing plans and everything like where the containers go on a ship that's all done with computer programs and everything like I, that would take months for humans to just to do one ship um yeah. but in terms of like you said 5G and IoT and things like that I don't think we'll see that relatively soon um mm. just because like, unfortunately COVID-19 it strained so many private and public sector resources that, you know, they're focused on the health and safety of their crew and ships, you know, as it should be, to be fair. But um, it's just unfortunate timing because 5G was really coming into play the last year or so. And then, you know, the pandemic.
0: Right. And another, another kind of threat, or I don't know if, I don't know if you identify this as a threat, but something that's emerging now is I think, the typical American citizen throughout the pandemic is starting to realize just how much of our uh, goods are not made in America, how much of it is made overseas, especially you know masks, medical devices, antibiotics. Um, I think that actually was quite a shell shock for a lot of people. Do you foresee? Um, you know, I think there's now. I think now people are realizing how fragile global supply chains can be. Do you foresee a shift towards? national uh, manufacturing and production in the united states or do you i mean i think it's safe to say that in in recent history there's been a shift towards offshore manufacturing and outsourcing of manufacturing do you see a reversal in that trend anytime soon
1: Uh, i think yes and no at the yes aspect my answer is because i think it depends on on the good like i think certain high-tech industries like pharmaceutical industry i think um A lot of that already is designed in the U.S. but manufactured elsewhere. I believe a lot of that would maybe start to be more manufactured in the U.S. um, if not like the ingredients or whatnot sourced in the U.S. Uh, but I think stuff like t-shirts and clothing and other um, household goods like that, I don't see them being manufactured in the U.S. anytime soon. Like of course there's always your mom and pop stores and specialty stores that do certain goods. But like on a huge um aspect like Amazon and Walmart and, you know, the clothing that myself and yourself are wearing. I mean, I don't see that being manufactured in the US anytime soon. Like it's it's unfortunate because it's I mean I mean companies do it for a profit and it's well excuse not a I wouldn't say a profit, but because it's so much cheaper, you know, you can pay someone in Bangladesh 50 cents an hour to do a work that would take an American worker 13 14 15 dollars an hour um you know you do the math over thousands of workers a yeah. day. you know that's millions if not billions of dollars for you know every day that is being saved over every single company so I think in the high-tech respective industry um like softwares and pharmaceuticals and heavily involved industries like that, I think we'll start to see a change. Um, Like you said, like China has been accused of hoarding and buying up masks and PPE, um, which you can agree with or not. Um, But like in terms of uh, medical supplies and um, antibiotics and stuff, I feel like American public and policymakers should start to focus that on more US-based. in terms of, like, I guess, simple goods like clothing and whatnot, I don't see that being manufactured in the U.S. anytime soon.
0: Fair, fair. And another thing I have to, I know we talked about, it, but I got to bring it up again. When we talk about environmental impact, obviously, these cargo ships emit, uh, you know, a very, like I, I'd say, a significant portion of carbon emissions, um, greenhouse gas pollutants. Um, what... I mean that's obviously a threat that's obviously a threat to the industry Mm -hmm. what are these companies doing to try to reduce emissions is there anything they can do like is there anything they can do to reduce emissions or is it simply just less routes? what's being done
1: yeah uh, a little bit of both so there's been a huge push in the industry the last 10-15 years or so to be more environmentally friendly or conscious um because if you, I mean, just from a, a math standpoint, if you did the same amount of math as for a container ship that can carry up to 20,000 containers, you know, that's 20,000 trucks um, for obviously one container for one truck. The for, you know, the, the value of one ship carrying all those containers versus um, 20,000 trucks is exponentially greater than having the, the 20,000 trucks. Um, Carrying those containers, like of course, you know, once you get to land, the the trucks have to do the the last mile, or put them on a the train and take them to the East Coast or whatnot. But um, in terms of like exactly what the industry's been doing, like there's um, there's these things called scrubbers, which are installed in the smokestacks, which um, help remove some of the most harmful gases, oh, that- carcinogens. Um, that's that's pretty effective. Like, I mean, it's not going to be zero percent carbon gases. Like, that's just how it is with the engines and whatnot. But there's um, there's companies that are like, especially Chevron's really big into this, like alternative fuels, um, like ethanol based and LNG, which is significantly cleaner uh, burning than um, like the the normal gas and fuels and bunker fuel which are used now um it's just unfortunately more pricey so if that stuff became more widely available and i guess cheaper you know supply Mm -hmm. and demand i could see even more reduction but um i mean it's not like you're gonna see electric container ship anytime soon that's just that's just too too big of a a scale Um, but there's definitely like a huge push and not just environmental groups but the companies in general. Obviously, they don't want the they don't want environmental groups breathing down their neck with lawsuits and whatnot. But just yeah. as the something to be proud of as a company, like hey, you know, we're doing X, Y, and Z to try and help the environment and mitigate our our carbon and CO two gases and releases in the environment. Yep. Um, even if it's as simple as like cutting napkins from um, the crew, like they might only have. A couple napkins per day rather than their normal stash like you know that's less trees like companies will promote that so mm-hmm. it's not just fuel based even though that's far in the way the biggest pollutant but um it, it's definitely a that's a very current issue that's been going on the last very few years or so um mm-hmm. and it, there's a lot of information and studies on that widely available
0: for sure just to share some news um Mm-hmm. Back in December of twenty eighteen Maersk said that they're aiming to um cut net carbon emissions to zero by twenty fifty and I think uh, they're aiming for zero emission v- vessels by twenty thirty
2: okay
0: uh, so yeah that's that's some positive actions We'll see if it happens um but yeah definitely it's nice to nice to know that some of the largest players are are thinking very seriously about this issue exactly sure. and
1: like that's that's how it should be regardless of your industry but you know, usually, yeah. I mean, again, they, they're arguably the biggest shipping company in the world. So they would, they would have the financial muscle to invest yes. in new engines and ships, which maybe a smaller player might not be able to, which, I mean, it's just economics 101. But um, that I mean, that's definitely a, a great positive step and something to market about. Um, again, that's like you said, it's 10 years in the works, if not longer. Um yeah. So we'll see what comes up with. But like I know there's a Norwegian company, I guess somewhat related, about two three years ago, they partnered with uh, Rolls-Royce in England and they made the world's first um, automated ship that didn't have anybody driving it. It was all remote controlled. Um, so that's like a new, um, I wouldn't say relatively new, but something to keep an eye on as well that, You know that could eliminate thousands if not hundreds of thousands of jobs worldwide i don't think it's going to be implemented anytime soon just because again the maritime industry is pretty resistant to change and obviously heavily unionized people are going to be against that which is fair because i mean it is their jobs and their livelihood but um companies are sure going to be taking a hard look at that as well
0: absolutely good stuff um so I know you guys have a, a new, your new report you said coming out in about seven to eight days. Roughly. Uh, exactly. is, there, is there anything else you want to share about MP that's next in store for you guys?
1: So we're uh, right now we're focusing on like our, our dev reports and geopolitical and like three C's initiative research. But uh, we're also trying to reach out to prospective players and see how us as a startup could be in a symbiotic relationship with you know respective company or another startup even whether it regardless if it's paid or not you know we're still obviously startup. you know trying to get our boots on the ground and settled so I I mentioned earlier we have a prospective um, uh, business proposal hopefully within the next week or so that we're looking to capitalize on so we'll see if that comes out as a a positive working relationship but um, now that we kind of have everything settled, like we have our website and our social media, which is kind of the first steps to starting a business in a way, um, where we're starting to hopefully create content and original content, which is you know huge. You can be as active as social media as you want, but if you don't have um, data and content to back that up, like people aren't gonna be interested in yourself. So yeah. I think that's like our, our next phase where we're at right now.
0: Cool. Yeah, I'll definitely share your, uh, send me your social media links. I'll definitely share them in the article so people can, yeah. can give you a follow. So as we wrap up this interview, I just want to ask, uh, is it still your is it still your, uh, your aspiration to start driving boats at some point?
1: Uh, in the end, yes. I mean, I, unfortunately, like everybody, like COVID has affected everybody in some way, shape or form. So that I might start in September when the industry at least, like that's what the next school date p- temporarily is but mm-hmm. um that might not happen at all i might start in a year or i might find another you know job that i fully like or who knows this startup might take off this summer take off. Yeah, um, so i'm definitely i'm not dead set on something but that that would be like a an end goal that hopefully i would like um to fulfill
0: and what kind of boats do you want to drive
1: um I'm, I'm leaning towards like tugboats, like something near shore. Um, mm-hmm. because you, you kind of have more of a life in a way, like you're not gone for a month or two at a time, like more a couple days or a week or so. Um, like you could argue like deep sea gets more money and whatnot, but I'd rather have a better quality of life than a lot more money. Um, yeah. and that's just my preference, but, um, that's like my that's like my preference, but if a good opportunity for like a deep sea vessel or ship with a company came up i I don't think I would hesitate to be fair i mean it's that's something where once you get your license um it's kind of like your first boot in the door, and then you can kind of go from where you want um that's just like the main barrier to entry per se so once I get that i'm I'm open to options, but um that's where I'm at with that
0: Good stuff. Thanks again, David, for doing this interview. I think we've talked about some really important issues and topics, regardless of whether or not you have interest in the maritime field, I think these are very important topics that concern all of us Americans. So thank you, David, we appreciate it. Um, Is there anything you want to leave us with before you go?
1: Uh, I mean, just uh, pay attention to the next week or so, and we'll have the second DAB report out as well as your respective startup reports, like on Medium, you know, those are really informational and informative. So, those are definitely um, really good pockets of information, not just for ourselves in terms of marketing, but the other startups and people you've been working with. So, um, thank you for your time, and I hope to continue working with you.
0: Same here. My pleasure. All right, have a
2: good one, man. You too.